electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, COVID Milestones. Pfizer's latest vaccine progress report, an application for emergency use. CNBC's senior health and science reporter Meg Terrell. A really historic milestone this morning, the first vaccine to go to the FDA for COVID-19 to try to stop this pandemic. And Eli Lilly's antiviral drug is now approved by the FDA for emergency use in a COVID-19 treatment cocktail. CEO David Ricks. Unlike other COVID therapies, this is widely available and we have ample supply. And what does all this news mean for getting back to normal? The CEO of IMAX talks movies and reopening. At the moment, we think that probably March, April is a good time to see North American theaters start to resume. It's November 20th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. This is CNBC, and it's Friday, and we're here for it. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Wilfred Frost. Joe is out today. We're playing. Let's get together. First up on today's podcast, before we head into the weekend, a few COVID updates. Coronavirus cases are hitting new highs in the United States, and the CDC is urging the country to keep Thanksgiving celebrations small. They're recommending Americans spend the holiday only with people who've been living in their households for the last 14 days, which means no military personnel who'd plan to come home and no college students back from campus. And this week, amid it all, California Governor Gavin Newsom issued a curfew between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. for all non-essential work and gatherings in most of the state. And the order will remain in place until at least December 21st, perhaps even longer. But some good news today as well. Pfizer and its partner BioNTech are submitting their application to the FDA for emergency use authorization of their COVID-19 vaccine. This would be the first COVID vaccine that goes through the regulatory process. Here's Becky. The FDA's review process is expected to take a few weeks. An advisory committee meeting on the vaccine is tentatively scheduled for early next month. If it's approved, some Americans could get their first doses in just about a month's time. Earlier this week, study data analysis showed this vaccine to be 95% effective, and that's incredibly impressive. Let's bring in Meg Terrell. She's got more on this. Meg, good morning. Good morning, Becky. Well, this is moving incredibly fast and a really historic milestone this morning, the first vaccine to go to the FDA for COVID-19 to try to stop this pandemic. So we are going to see this regulatory process really play out over the coming weeks. Uh, you know, we should hear, typically the way this works is the company alerts the world when the FDA has accepted an application and set a date to decide on the drug. We're in a pandemic, of course, so those dates are not going to be normal. And the communications might be different, too. We might hear from the FDA uh, about either the decision timing that they might be looking at and especially about when they're going to set that advisory committee meeting uh, to discuss this vaccine. That's when outside advisors get together and dig apart all of the data around uh, the vaccine, uh, the safety, the efficacy, the manufacturing, uh, and talk about also you know, how this should potentially be approved for the market. 
Um, and it's possible we will see an application from Moderna, they said, within weeks. Uh, so we should see that soon, too. And so the expectation that I had heard was that the FDA had asked those outside advisors to set aside December 8th, 9th, and 10th, three days to potentially discuss both vaccines. Um, now, Dr. John Torres from NBC had the FDA Commissioner uh, Stephen Hahn, I almost said Scott Gottlieb, Stephen Hahn on with him yesterday on a Facebook Live. He asked him about those dates. And, you know, he said the FDA was going to be flexible. He wouldn't confirm that they had asked them to set those dates. And so we have been hearing since we reported those dates, a lot of people sort of saying, why is this going to take so long? And so we will have to wait to see what the FDA actually does um, in terms of scheduling that meeting. They do need time to go through the application themselves very carefully, prepare the documents for the committee, and then the committee will discuss it. And we do expect the FDA to decide extremely quickly after that meeting uh, whether to greenlight this for market. Uh, and then Pfizer and BioNTech say they are ready to go within hours after that, um, that green light to start shipping this. Guys? Yeah, that was one of the things that really caught my attention this morning, the idea that within hours they'd be ready to start shipping some of this vaccine and getting it out there. And, and that brings up the question of how we do that. How do we distribute this? Where does it go? How do we determine who gets it first? And I know the states have been working on plans along with the federal government to try and figure out how much each state would get. But how does it work? Do we, do we even know? Do we have a, a real game plan for who gets what, when and how? We know part of that. So Operation Warp Speed and HHS Secretary Alex Azar held a briefing about those plans are earlier this week. Um, and essentially what would happen after the FDA gives the green light, if it does, then the CDC has an advisory committee as well that would meet to make the recommendations about who should get this vaccine first. If there are two vaccines, if there are any differences in them, you know, which group should get which dosing all of that stuff. Um, and so that's expected to happen extremely quickly. And then the CDC makes recommendations about how much each state should get. Uh, Secretary Azar was saying based on population. We also know, of course, that because supply will be so limited that there are going to be prioritized groups. Healthcare workers are expected to be at the top. Uh, people with underlying health conditions that make them more severe, uh, more vulnerable to severe disease will also be at the top. And so uh, we'll see how that gets allocated to the states um, based on you know, what the CDC group recommends. Another drug maker, Gilead, has been in the news for its work on a coronavirus therapeutic. Although this news isn't quite as hopeful. A World Health Organization panel advised doctors against using Gilead's antiviral drug remdesivir as a COVID treatment, saying there's no evidence that it improves survival or shortens recovery time. Now, that's a split from recommendations by the U.S. National Institutes of Health and health organizations in Japan, Germany, and the U.K. You might also remember that remdesivir is one of the drugs used in President Trump's COVID treatment cocktail last month. In a statement response, Gilead said the WHO's recommendation ignores evidence and that the stakes are high. Remdesivir is the only approved antiviral treatment in about 50 countries. That said, in the U.S., remdesivir may be considered useful as part of a cocktail. This week, the FDA issued emergency use clearance for Eli Lilly's rheumatoid arthritis drug, baricitinib, to be used alongside remdesivir in treating coronavirus patients. A clinical trial showed a slight reduction in recovery time for patients treated with the drug combo when compared to patients treated only with remdesivir. Becky, Andrew, Wilford, and Meg Terrell spoke with Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks. Here's Meg. 
Dave, thanks for being here on the news that you just got emergency use authorization along with your partner Insight for your drug baricitinib uh, to treat COVID-19. This is your second emergency use authorization for a drug for COVID. Walk us through uh, the data supporting baricitinib's use for this disease. Well, good morning, Meg. Thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, first of all, this is an important day um, for the company with our second emergency use authorization. I think there's only five for medicines so far. Uh, Lily's got two of them. This is for baricitinib, a drug called Illumiant that's normally used for rheumatoid arthritis treatment uh, to be used in the later stages of this disease to tamp down the cytokine storm, the immune response your body has for patients in hospital. And it was proven to be most effective in those that are on supplemental oxygen or beyond, mechanical ventilation, ECMO, a serious stage of the disease, and in combination with remdesivir, which is proven in this setting uh, as well. Um, so um, the data showed that, that it could reduce time in hospital and improve other outcomes like the day 29 status of patients as, as well as um, uh, their time to discharge. Can you walk us through how you're looking at pricing for this indication? We understand, of course, the drug is approved for rheumatoid arthritis. It costs a little more than $2,000 on a list price basis for a 30-day supply. And I understand based on the recommended dosing, that price might be about the same dose for COVID. But, but tell us how you're thinking about the cost here. Well, this is an approved drug uh, for rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, it's about $100 um, per day dose uh, at the four milligrams that we're discussing um, in this emergency use authorization, uh, maybe 130 for commercial patients. Uh, the course should be about 14 days on average for patients. Uh, we think that's about in line with other COVID therapies. Uh, so we don't an anticipate changing the price. There's another reason not to do that, which is that unlike other COVID therapies, this is widely available and we have ample supply. So the last thing we wanna do is introduce a new form and special distribution and so forth what we want to do is make this available to the 80,000 patients who are sitting in a hospital bed right now in the U.S. so they can get discharged um, more quickly and we can relieve the pressure on our hospital system. The best way to do that, the fastest way to do that, is just use the commercial supply we have right now, which is actually dispensed in two milligram doses. So uh, patients will get two two milligram doses per day, hopefully for two weeks or so, and then uh, be discharged on the backbone of what it costs to stay in a hospital bed with COVID, it's a pretty good deal. And we think um, just leaving that as it is, is both convenient, but also fair. So the drug was uh, cleared for use uh, in combination with remdesivir. I'm wondering your thoughts on the World Health Organization's guidelines recommending against use of remdesivir based on their trial showing that it does not have benefits on mortality or preventing patients from needing ventilators or even shortening time to recovery. That, of course, is in contrast to the U.S. trial, which showed it does shorten time to recovery. But how much use are you expecting uh, of baricitinib plus remdesivir, given sort of some of the controversy around the data for remdesivir? Yeah, that is a controversial topic. Uh, I, what the WHO seems to be relying on is this so-called big simple study that's not very well controlled, but observes a lot of people in a variety of settings. We know the benefits of remdesivir are probably subtle or modest, um, and the benefits of baricitinib on top of remdesivir uh, you know, are incremental as well. But what the NIH, the U.S. approach to this, has been to study these in a very careful, double-blind, placebo-controlled setting to study the incremental benefits of each. And uh, Meg, you know, in our industry, a lot of progress is made in medicine in improving outcomes through those incremental advances. 
So I think this decision by the WHO throws some confusion uh, out there. But uh, personally, you know, our view in our industry is to, is to use the better controlled studies to really evaluate uh, benefits of medicines. Now, um, uh, in the U.S., this is a U.S. emergency use authorization, uh, will be approved for use on top of remdesivir, which is broadly used in the U.S. Remdesivir use outside the U.S. is quite different and probably is going to um, change now based on the WHO guidelines. We've anticipated that and actually are running a global phase three program for baricitinib in COVID-19 hospitalized patients on any background that the doctor chooses. That includes some remdesivir patients, but also importantly includes uh, dexlamethasone, the steroid that's commonly used and was also studied in a big simple trial in the UK. Um, and so we'll be able to learn through that study, Barry alone, Barry plus remdesivir, and Barry plus dex uh, in these more complicated hospital patients. That's a double-blind study, well-controlled, and we should get those results in early 2021, a very important uh, new study that we sponsored. Hey, David, do you think the WHO was really just not being very practical in terms of trying to figure out treatments for a disease that's been around, you know, less than a year at this point, has existed less than a year, and trying to get up to speed and find any potential solution that we could? I mean, it, it, it's kind of frustrating. I realize it may not be the traditional way, the traditional study they'd like to see, but I think doctors are doing their best. I think drug companies are doing their best. I think governments are doing their best to try and deal with any potential solution they can find. Yeah, I agree, Becky. I think everyone's trying to try to make the biggest difference they can. I'm not gonna try to guess at what the pushes and pulls are on the WHO um, as an entity. Um, you know, some speculate cost plays a role in their decision-making. What I can say as the CEO of a drug company is we have to re rely on the standards of science that support all medical progress. And the gold standard for that is double-blind placebo-controlled studies. Uh, we were proud to partner with the NIH uh, to do such a study which supports uh, the use of baricitinib on top of remdesivir. And that same methodology was used to, to study remdesivir initially. Of course, the background standard of care has improved pretty dramatically. In the original ACT-1 study, which, which resulted in remdesivir being approved, you know, they, they moved from 14 days to 11 uh, hospital stay, a three-day improvement. In our study, done over the summer primarily, uh, the standard moved from eight on remdesivir to seven with baricitinib. So already just other things that changed in the background have improved patient outcomes from 11 days on rem to eight in our study. That's probably continues. We continue to make progress, even with basic things like who to use ventilation on and, and putting patients in a prone position, for instance. Those improvements, I think, are helping people get out of the hospital sooner. Baricitinib is one more improvement that can help people get out of the hospital. And it's not a small improvement on the scale of 80,000 people sitting in a hospital bed today. Uh, a 15 or 12% improvement in that will be uh, an important relief for those strained hospitals across America. Yeah, Dave, before we let you go, I want to ask you about your other drug that you have emergency use authorization for, for COVID, which is your, your antibody drug. Can you give us an update on how the rollout of that is going with all the complex things that go into administering an IV drug to patients who are not in the hospital? Um, and also, I would wonder if you could comment on the uh, Infectious Diseases Society of America's recommendation yesterday to not use the antibody drug because they don't think that there's enough evidence supporting its, its use. Yeah, thanks, Meg, for that question. Just on the second point, I think that's not exactly what they said. I think what they said is there wasn't sufficient evidence, um, but that patients could make that choice um, uh, based on the d limited data available. 
This is the kind of thing that one would expect from these academic medical groups. Uh, of course, it's an emergency use. We, we have not conducted a full phase three um, uh, set of data. It's not what we're used to looking at for an approved drug. It's an emergency use in a pandemic crisis. Um, and so I think they failed to take that into their recommendation. Certainly the FDA, the, the other HHS agencies, NIH and Lilly, think this is a useful uh, tool in the midst of the situation we're in and the, and the benefits outweigh the risks. Um, today, we're, um, we've shipped more than 150,000 doses uh, to the government that's making its way across the country. Uh, there is quite a bit of variability uh, from what I hear anecdotally by state in terms of uptake and ability to put this medicine to work to keep uh, our, our most vulnerable patients, those over 65 and with pre-existing conditions, out of the hospital. Uh, we believe it, it, it can reduce that risk of hospitalization by more than 70%, but there are logistical challenges. How do we infuse patients uh, in early in the cycle? How to identify high-risk patients? And then just distribution physically um, has taken some work. We're working with governors and state departments of health, along with uh, the federal government is working with them to smooth out those wrinkles. You know, I can say here in Indiana, we work closely with our Department of Health where we're based and it's going pretty well. So um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a mixed picture that we want to improve over the next few days. It's important that Bamlanivimab is fully deployed and used, every dose used, uh, because we're in the peak of a crisis. This is why we made the drug, is to solve the problem we're in right now. Uh, and we want to work with all the partners to, to smooth out those wrinkles. All right. Well, Dave Briggs, we really appreciate you being here with us this morning, and we hope you'll come back Thanks, soon. Thanks. Thanks again. I'm sure I will. Take care. Coming up, what surging coronavirus cases nationwide mean for entertainment, the CEO of IMAX, and reopening around the world. I think there'll be a transition period where even people with vaccines likely wear masks just to make the people around them feel safe. But again, my biggest surprise has been in other territories, how quickly it's gone back to normal. Squawk Pod will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. We want to talk about an industry that's counting very much on a vaccine. Of course, that is movie theaters. And movie theater stocks like IMAX have been struggling this year, as you know, with those shares down more than 27%. Joining us right now to talk about the future of theaters as cases rise and the Christmas movie season aims to go digital. I want to bring in Richard Gelfond, IMAX CEO. Richard, it's very good to see you. I wish we could see you in person. I just want you to react to that news and and in terms of how you think about a vaccine and the timeline for people getting back in the theaters, what does it require? So, Andrew, I would say the vaccine came along, the first Pfizer announcement, about the lowest point that I can think of in terms of looking at the future. Europe had just started to close down again. Things were getting worse in North America. Studios were delaying movies. There was very little light. And then all of a sudden, Pfizer and Moderna come out, and they come out with an efficacy rate, which I think means that people will go back to the movies sooner than they would have 
because they'll feel safe. You know, what they don't have to wait for herd immunity. It's when they feel safe. So integrating a lot of it, um, most of it, we're gathering from watching your experts on CNBC. At the moment, we think that probably March, April is a good time to see North American theaters start to resume um, because it's it's not that you need everyone vaccinated. Remember the rollout, which we've heard is after the hospital workers, it's going to be the older people with underlying conditions. And once that happens, I think the core audience of millennials and Gen Z won't worry about getting grandma or grandpa sick. So I think it's going to happen faster than people think. With that said, I don't really think it'll get back to a state of really open and normal. Um, It'll open in pieces until like May, June, July, something like that. And are you imagining that people are going to be masked, masked up and continuing social distancing and all of the, the procedures and steps that many theaters had already tried to implement before shutting down, uh, even once the vaccine is available? Or are you expecting it to feel um, more normal, if you will? Well, I can give you a context in Asia where the cases are way down, particularly China, Korea and um, Japan, where we have a very large presence It's really back to normal. It's kind of incredible. Um, People aren't wearing masks, not only at theaters, but almost nowhere in China. And when you go to a theater there, we're setting all kinds of records um, where people feel safe and they really are safe. Um, They're going back as if um, this was a chapter that's pretty much closed. I think North America is going to be a little bit more tricky because it lasted longer and the caseload was higher. So I think there'll be a transition period where even people with vaccines likely wear masks just to make the people around them feel safe. Um, But again, my biggest surprise has been in other territories how quickly it's gone back to normal once the case count is low. Richard, I I know the IMAX experience is very different, obviously, than an in-home experience or even a, a typical theater experience. But how concerned are you? about some of the big Hollywood studios, obviously that are now connected and have uh, streaming services, effectively deciding, you know what, this is actually kind of interesting. We're gonna launch, for example, Wonder Woman, the latest Wonder Woman on HBO Max, and maybe that's gonna bring in so many subscriptions that they're gonna say to themselves, you know what, the model's changing, maybe we're gonna do it differently in the future. Is that, what's your take there? So I'm not that worried, Andrew, and The reason comes down to economics and profitability. So let's just step back for a second. The Walt Disney Company did $11 billion in box office last year. And that doesn't count the ancillaries like TV rights and merchandising rights and sequels and theme park rides. And on an apples to apples basis, um, Warner Brothers did $4.5 billion last year. So I don't know the exact ratio, but you could probably double that to seven, eight, nine billion in terms of the impact. When you model out streaming in any case, um, it just can't make that money back. Now we're in an interesting time and place, which is that streaming is kind of really the fashion among Wall Street. And you announce something in streaming, your stock goes right. up. And you know that works for a while and it's a fashion and I understand that it builds your business, makes some sense to me. But ultimately, you've got to deliver profit or your stock isn't going to stay up. And this concept of multiple windows and being able to monetize a property several times, first theatrically, 
um, then probably on PVOD, then streaming. It's just too good a business um, to wipe away. Richard, we appreciate uh, you joining us as we always do. And I hope we get an opportunity to see you in person very, very soon. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Feel the same way. Appreciate it. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening to another week of Squawk Pad. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin on weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating, review on Apple Podcasts, or even send us a tweet at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a safe weekend. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.